I was thinking during worship about the the song "Let Us Sing and Let Us Come and Sing and Wonder." That that line in the very beginning, where it says, um, "I have to kind of always got to go through." <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I did this first service too. Uh, it says, um, "Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name." And then it says this: "Let us or He has hushed the law's loud thunder." He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. And the concept there is this, that the John Newton, who wrote this, and if you're familiar with the song Amazing Grace, this is the same man that wrote Amazing Grace. So this is at the time, he's a slave trader, he's a vile man, he comes to know Christ, his whole world changes, he's the man who, one of my favorite lines in all of church history, he said, there's two things that I know. At the end of his life, he was preaching a message, he got completely lost at what he was doing. He was so senile, he didn't remember anything. He didn't, and some of you are looking at like, yeah, that's our experience here at Hope every week. But uh, he, he got lost. Someone had to come help him find his place in his notes. And he said, there's only two things that I, I'm an old man, I don't remember much. There's two things I remember very well. I'm a great sinner. And Christ is a great savior. He, he understood Grace. And so when he says, he writes this line, which we obviously have changed the tune, but it says, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. And that's a reference back to the Exodus when Moses is um, out with, by the way, those of you over here, this is the meat locker section. If you're, uh, so it's a little chilly over here. If you like that chili, that's fine. If you don't, then uh, you can move somewhere else. I don't know what it's like upstairs. The chili up there, it's not quite as bad, is it? But it really hits down here. So we call it the meat locker section. Uh, keep our fresh meats and everything right in, the, in those pews. Anyway, <clears throat> that's amen. Amen to that, brother. So uh, the, the, the idea here is, is that when Moses was up getting the law, he was getting the Ten Commandments and all these other laws, there was an amazing shock and awe show happening. There was thunder and lightning and the place shook and smoke and it was an awesome thing up on Mount Sinai. So much so that everybody who watched it said, we, don't, we can't, don't let that, don't let God speak to us directly or we'll die. So what happened was Moses was given the law, not just the Ten Commandments, he was given that, but he was given much more than that. And what happened is that law was given for every one of us to obey perfectly, of which absolutely no one except Jesus Christ did or can do. You just don't have the capacity living in a fallen world to be able to follow these. You can't. And so what the law does is points to you and says, sinner, you don't measure up. You don't make it. Great, great. Great, good message, Pastor. Thanks for coming to church. What, the cross says you can't make it. If you try to make it, you won't. If you give up and give it over to me and say, Jesus, be my Savior. I commit myself to you individually. Then, that, that is true. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has, then it says, uh, quenched Mount Sinai's fire. It's awesome. And so what Christ went through on the cross for you and I is an amazing thing, worthy of coming to worship every single week. All right, 
That was free stuff. This you have to pay for now. Here we go. I, I like to, uh, those of you who know me, I, I like to, to fish. I like to fly fish. I'm a relative newbie at it. I've only been fly fishing since 05, which is about five years now. Some of these dudes have been, I go different streams and I, I park along the stream and I meet a guy and this guy's been fishing this river for 30 years, 40 years, and I, I just feel like a total newbie at this thing. But with all that said, and in all humility, I'm a pretty good caster. I really am. I really can zip the spot pretty much where I want. And it came pretty quick and got that timing thing down. It's, it's just awesome. I just enjoy it. Uh, it's just a great thing to be in a river. But every now and then, it's usually because not the casting ability, it's usually the wind. Every now and then I have a little problem and the fly, the hook, will come and will hit the end of the rod. It does happen even to the best of us. And what happens at that moment you'd think is the fly hits the end of the line, no big deal, you just stop, you unhook the line, you beat, no. I don't know what happens in that point one millisecond, but it just goes, and it's in this like complete knot. And I stop and I look and I go, how in the world did that possibly happen? And I fish the, you know, fly through different parts and I take the knots and loosen them up and sometimes it takes me like 20 minutes to undo one of these things. I've been involved in a lot of counseling of people, and especially relationships, uh, uh, relationships, marriages that are having a hard time. And they often come, and one of the questions they're constantly asking is, how in the world did we get there? What's the knot? I mean, how, how did you get there? And I think this is a great, that's a great sign if you were to see that. And it's just, it's just a mess. And it's not just one thing. It's, it's not upon knot, and it's kind of all put in there. And they can't figure it out because there's too many knots and they need someone to kind of help them kind of take this thing piece by piece. And it's, you know, each individual knot maybe not is that big of a deal, but when it comes together, it is just a tangled mess. And so we're in a series right now in 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the people of Corinth. The church in Corinth, to put it mildly, is a tangled mess it is a mess in a whole variety of different areas. And what Paul is doing, and he's doing quite masterfully, is little bit by little bit taking it and trying to untangle it. We're going to see that as we work our way through this whole letter, that he's kind of untangling this thing. Now, the thing we've been on for the last 12 weeks, basically, we had a week or two in introduction, but after that, we've been on one issue, and it ends today. The issue is factions or divisions in the church. There's cage matches going on with at least four different parties in Corinth who just are, are loathing one another and they're fighting about it. And Paul has spent from chapter uh, 1 to 4, the whole, the whole first four chapters on this issue and we end it today. So if you have a Bible with you, open it up to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. If you uh, have an insert with you, you can follow along. I think, I, yeah, there it is. Uh, you can, it's kind of small text Kind of small printing, uh, you can see it, and then you can follow along on the, on the notes there if you want to do that as well. Whatever you want to do, it'll be on the screen as well. What Paul's doing here in our last time together as we're looking at this whole issue of divisions is he's kind of summarizing everything, and what I would call, what I think is his theme is he's answering the question, what's the root, or what are the roots of these nasty divisions, and he's going to kind of summarize it. So if you've been paying attention to everything we've done so far, it's not a whole lot of new stuff, well, maybe a little bit, 
but he's going to say it in a very provocative way. What are the roots of these different divisions that are happening? And he's going to give, in my estimation, I see four summary statements, okay? And I'm, just, and I'm not going to read through the passage today. It's kind of a longer passage, verses 6 to 21. We're just going to go through it. I'm going to give you the first one. The first root. Now, wait, I have one other thing to say. I, I have been here almost 13 years, and hope has been blessed. I, I'd call it a blessing, yeah, that we have not had a major church fight. We've had battles over things. Battles are good. Battles are, let's figure this out. We're into it, and we you know, kind of rub each other, and that's good. But fights are where there's camps and politics and footnoted papers and just just all we not had that and so my hope is that nowhere in my pastoral ministry here at hope will we have that so i'm asking nay i'm begging you listen good to this sermon okay because i don't want to go through this and if you guys just stay away from these four things we're going to be good all right so if you're not going to do it for you do it for me, because I don't care so much about you, but I don't want to go through this for me. Now, with that said, number one, what's their problem? Number one is they have a wrong view of people, and in, especially with comparing and ranking people, including themselves. They have a wrong view of that. All right, let's take a look at this. Verses 6 and 7. Let me read it, and then we'll kind of talk about it. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Okay, so let's just take a look at the first, first verse, verse 6. And it says... Um, I have taken all these things previously, all the things they talked about, which if you remember, all the different things we've been talking about for, for 10, 12 weeks here is uh, that it's about the Spirit of God. It's not about how good the pastor is. That's what makes a church. Paul was the first pastor. He started the church. He was there a year and a half. And then Apollos came. He was there some three years. Paul has been gone. He's writing them a letter because some things are messed up now. We're not sure if Apollos is still there or not, but somewhere in there, there was the two, the two different pastors. And, and Paul's saying, I'm applying all this stuff I've said before to Apollos and I. In other words, don't be wise in your own eyes. Be humble. Uh, build the church of God using, using gold, uh, silver, and costly stones. Do it well. All these different things. He says, first thing I'm going to do is apply that to myself and to Apollos so you can learn from us. Then you will understand the meaning of the saying. <laughs> this is kind of funny, actually. Uh, don't go beyond what is written. Because it says, it says, then you'll understand that. Then you will, you will learn from the meaning. Now, you're saying, what does that mean? Don't go beyond what is written. I have little to no idea, uh, really. Uh, and that's funny because it tells us you're supposed to. The commentaries are all over the map. There are at least seven camps. And I'm not going to bore you with this. There's seven different, at least, very good, solid ideas of what that could even mean. I'm not even sure. Some think it means the quotations that Paul had from the Old Testament already in his letter. Some think it means the letters that he's written to them. Some think it means all of the Old Testament. Some think it's just a, a uh, phrase just saying, uh, don't go beyond what, is, what you should be doing. 
That's basic. I, I don't exactly know, but what I, I do know what Paul is basically trying to say is, I want you to learn something so that you stay within some boundaries. And I think all of that kind of fits within there. Now, with that said, the outcome of this is, then you will not boast or take pride in one person over another. That's the outcome. Some people say, I'm a Paul man. I like Paul better than Apollos. I like the previous pastor. The next one says, I like Apollos. He's better. And you saw that divisions that we had in there. And he's saying, this will stop that. Now, with that, he asks three questions. Three questions that are like when your mother says to you a question, and it's in a, it's in a way that it's got her finger pointing what were you thinking? And then you have no possible way of answering this. If you don't say anything, she will say, come on, tell me. And if you start to say something, she will say, don't talk back to me, right? It's that moment. This is what's happening with Paul. There are three questions and there is no good answer. Three huge questions. Look at those three questions. There they are. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And... If you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Let's take a look at these one at a time. As a relatively new follower of Christ in college, I came across 1 Corinthians 4, 7, memorized it, just as three questions, because I realized, wow, these are some pretty heavy questions. Let's, let's even do the answers. Question number one, who makes you different than anyone else? Answer, no one. Let me ask this the way maybe you've been asked by your parents. If you had good parents... Who yell at you from time to time? <laughs> who do you think you are? That's the question, okay? Just who do you think you are? Again, not a question you should answer because you'll say, don't talk back to me, right? Who do you think you are? Who makes you different than anyone else? You think you're more important? Or let me put it the other way. You think you're less important? And you're all saying, oh, we know this stuff. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, I don't either. Though I say I know it, 15 minutes after this message, I'll walk outside and I'll see somebody's car that looks nicer than mine. I'll say, wow, they're, they're, they're a little more value than I do because they have a nicer car. Of course, I got my bike here and then you're all messed because I'm the best. But the, uh, or, or, you, you, or I'll see someone on the street with a sign that says homeless and I'll go, man, I'm better than them. I'm, I'm better than them. I got a job. You think this all the time, so do I, and it's a constant battle to say, who makes you different than anyone else? It's level ground at the cross, level ground, and it's a daily battle as I look at people and not try to look at them either up or down, daily battle. I remember once that, um, I don't know what your policy is, and you can have any policy you want, that's fine, I you have to listen to what God would do for you. As people on the street ask me for money, I don't give it to them. I may buy them something, but I don't just give them money. And, and that's, you do what you need to do. That's between you and God, and this is how God and I have worked this out. So that's, that's where I'm at with that one. But God has told me something very clearly. You don't owe him any money, but you owe that man or that woman respect. So I will always meet eyes. I'll ask them how they're doing. I will owe them respect, even if they've lived, lived a very disrespectful life. Guess what? So have I. I just mask it better. Jesus uses a, uh, a parable here 
because some people were struggling with this in Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told them a parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, so he wouldn't even come close to the, wouldn't even come close to the temple. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus then teaching him, saying, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. God heard that prayer. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Huge parable. He's a guy whose life is a train wreck. He was a tax collector. In, in today's culture, that would be like, well, pretty much like a tax collector, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know. But I mean, it would it'd be like an IRS agent who's just trying to squeeze you all the money out of you. He was a, in, that, in that culture, he was a Jewish person, and yet he worked for the Romans, so he's already kind of a traitor, and he was a thief. Because the way he made money was he overcharged you and took the extra. He was a thief. This is, I mean, tax collector, yee, yee, yee. According to society, the worst. And Jesus says that this guy went there and he viewed himself as a sinner. Now, I've, I've read that passage for years. I always felt like, oh, it's good. I want to be like the tax collector. And Jesse Splann said something to me that's kind of changed this parable once again for me. He said, if you think of the parable and you say, man, I sure am glad that I'm not like the Pharisee, you are. Right? <laughs> I sure am glad I'm not like that guy. Wait a minute. I am. I just said it. Ah! It's a whole circle. So if you put, notice that the tax collector doesn't do that. He doesn't compare himself to the other guy and say, he says, no, it's all level ground. This Pharisee who's here who has no clue about sin, okay, but me, man, I'm, I, need, I need forgiveness too. It's all level ground. Second thing, or the second question is, what do you have that you did not receive? Think about that for a second. What do you have that God did not give you? God created every molecule. God created everything, and everything is a gift from God. Everybody just do something here. You probably already did it while I'm speaking, but just, to, just breathe in. And breathe out, you know, don't hold it. Okay, that breath was a gift from God. As a person living in a fallen world, if we were all to get what we deserve right now, we would all go to hell, every one of us. We don't deserve the next breath. What do you have as you that you did not receive? Everything you have, you have received from God. Every single thing. Paul then goes on to the third thing, and he says, if that's true... Oh, no, excuse me. Let me, let me uh, James, James 1 says, Don't be deceived, my dear friends. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every gift, everything, everything you own, all the, your health, you, the fact that you're alive, whatever possession you have, anything like that is a gift from God. Every single thing. If that's true, then question number three. If you did receive it, why do you boast... As though you did not. 
Basically, you're making God out to be a liar. You're saying, I did this. This is me. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I've, I've, I've wrestled with this one a lot in, in just uh, the last couple of years. We do a study of the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. In that study, um, in the first chapter, Paul does, I think, the greatest job in all the Bible of talking about what sin is. Sin is not just busting the commandments. I mean, it is that, but there's more going on in your heart. Sin is actually treason. It's when you look to your own ways and you don't give glory to God, but it's beyond just glory. Look at Romans chapter 1 of me real quickly. 21 to 23, it says, For although they knew God, they neither, here it comes, glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. What do they do? They, they exchange the glory of God for idolatry. In other places it talks about exchanging the creator for creation. If that's what sin is, then we're in a lot of trouble because we do that all the time. I don't get my life from Christ. I get my life from anything else. And that's sin. can look really good too. Good job. Ooh, I'm, that's what defines me. Then it's sin. Okay. But the point here is, Paul says, they neither glorified God, and the second thing is, or gave him thanks. The antidote to boasting is having a thankful heart. Having a thankful heart. Are you thankful? Are you thankful to to God for things in your life? Do you tell him? I uh, recently was just, uh, I was riding around on my bike, which, which is, that is a joy to me. It's, I, call, I call my bike my urban trout stream because it relaxes me in about 10 seconds. I'm out and I'm just, oh, life is good. I'm just, anyway, if you're not a biker, that's fine. I'll pray for you. But the, the uh, uh, you, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So, um, and so I'm on my bike, I'm, I'm riding around, and I just start counting my blessings, things in my life. I, I, have, great, I have great kids, I have health. I, I, pretty much, I have a back issue. I've had it for 10 years. But I have, I have great kids, you know, they're not involved in gangs or all this kind of stuff that can happen if you live in a city. Uh, I have a great job. I've got a great church. I just, all, on and on, I've got a great spouse. I've been married for 21 years. Things are going well. i got all these things, and I just start counting them one by one. And I start thanking God for them. And you know, when you do that, your heart kind of changes. Now, I'll admit something to you. Whenever I do anything um, athletic, either just playing softball or I just on Tuesday, I went and played golf. It's hard for me for about three days to get out of a chair. Just, uh, ah, there it is. I got a back problem. All right? Then I don't like that. But I'm not going to focus on that. I'm not going to focus on that. And, and you know what? God probably put that in my life for some reason. Maybe I'd be more of an arrogant SOB without it. And he just puts that in and saying, zinc, I'm going to change you a little bit here. Every time you get out of a chair now, you'll be reminded of that little disc in there that's causing you problems. Do you have a thankful heart if you live that way? Second thing. First thing was, remember, th- they didn't look at people right. They were comparing and contrasting, and it's a constant battle for everyone in the room. Second thing, they have an over-realized eschatology. 
big word for you. Overrealized eschatology. Tell your friends, you know what? You've got an overrealized eschatology. And they'll say, oh, I didn't even know I was sick. Uh, you just, yeah, this thing, it's just a big theological phrase, and it's really simple. But I love when theologians do it. They give big words to simple concepts. And the simple concept is this. Overrealized just means you expect too much. And eschatology means heaven, basically. In other words, you expect heaven now. And the Corinthians were doing that. They expected that all of the blessings of heaven would be available to them right now. All of the riches, all of the, all of the, the pleasures, there wouldn't be pain. And maybe you've heard this before. That, and, and there are some churches that teach us now. That if, if you're not healthy or wealthy or wise, there's something wrong with you. It's you. There's something wrong with your faith. If you're not healed, there's something wrong with you. And this is what's taking place in Corinth. And you're going to see this in this next section. Now, I've got to warn you. In all of Scripture, I think this is probably the most sarcastic anywhere found. I'm having a, you, you, can, you can argue with that if you want. There's some good or sarcastic passages. Paul lays it on super thick here. So just hang with me. Let's just read it together. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You've become kings. And that without us. How I wish that you had really become kings so that we might be kings with you. In other words, they were teaching things about you're the king's kid, so you should live like a king. You should be rich. You should have all your needs met. Paul's saying, what is that about? And he talks about what it's like to be an apostle. He says, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We'll talk about that in just a minute. We've become a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You, we are, you are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands, which was something that the Corinthians looked down on. They said, oh, you're a manual laborer. Ah, you're nothing. Um, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we've become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. The English language, and especially Bible translators, don't like to make this as earthy as it is. You should make it a little earthier. What, what this literally means is when you're walking around in a society that had very poor sanitation and no out, you know, sewage system, you walk around and there's stuff that you scrape off the bottom of your shoe. If you know what I'm talking about? That's what, that's what this is. It should be translated that way, but you, you get it. It's just, yeah, that's who we are. Now, what Paul says there when he says that we're like the end of a procession or the end of a parade is... Uh, when a, a nation was conquered, they would have all of the military march a parade. And at the end of the parade came the prisoners of the other nation. When they marched in this parade, they, people would throw things at them. They would spit on them. They would do all kinds of nasty things to them, maybe even hit them. And what they got to do was they got to go to the Coliseum and play tag with a hungry lion. The lion usually won. And that's what he's saying. That's who it seems like it's, that's what it's like. You want to be a follower of Jesus? That's what my, your life might look like. Not this, everything's going to be healthy, wealthy, and 
everything perfect now. It's not gonna. It's not gonna be that way. So they had two things that they were dealing with when this over-realized eschatology. First one, they had an unreal expectation, or even more so, demand that God make life the way that they want it to be. God, you, you owe me. Do you know how much I've done for you? Do you know how much I've sacrificed for you? You owe me. That's, that's what he's talking against here. Paul writes about this on just one area. I could pick a bunch. The Bible is filled with this stuff. But he picks one area about money. And he says this. He says, if anyone teaches false doctrines that does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in all this faction stuff, envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth. And here it is. And who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. If I just follow God, I'm going to be rich. You don't believe that's still around today? Turn on Christian TV. You'll hear that all the time. If you follow God, you're going to get rich. It's not in the Bible. For we brought, it says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we're not going to take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I don't have time to go into all because this isn't, we're not talking about 1 Timothy here, but 1 Timothy 6 also says, Paul's telling Timothy to teach the people in the church that Timothy's at in Ephesus saying, command people who are rich not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to hope in God who richly provides all things for our enjoyment. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 6. So he's not saying there's anything wrong with being rich. There is something wrong with putting stock in riches or whether you think God has blessed me and I'm good because of my behavior and God therefore has given me money. And if I don't have money, there's something wrong with me. That's wrong. But if you're rich, hey, cut up and do a nicer guy. That's what I'm saying. Huh? Go for it. There's nothing wrong with that. But not, don't put your hope into it. Now, that's a flip from what the, they were thinking. They were thinking, if you're a Christian, you'll be rich, you'll be healed, all these different things. And the second thing, and it goes right along with it is, they had a very poor theology or perhaps an even non-existent theology of suffering. This is America too. We do not have a good theology of suffering in America. We don't get it. And granted, we're not being persecuted by our, our, our government. Who knows, maybe someday, but it's, that's not the way it is now. But if you're going to follow Christ, I can guarantee you, if you're going to go hard after him, you will suffer. And much of it will be mental suffering. Much of it will be relational suffering because people will reject you. Sometimes that's even worse than persecution. Peter talks about this. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So that you may be overjoyed when the, his glory is revealed. Suffering really going after God and really loving on people will be painful in this life. I guarantee it. Jesus promises in this world you will have trouble. It is just part of it. 
And anyone who says to you, there's something wrong with your faith because you're suffering for Christ, is not a student of the Bible. Poor theology of suffering leads to an unrealistic expectation and a demand on God, God, you will give me what I deserve. Do you really want what you deserve? (laughs) I don't. Third thing. There was no father figure in their spiritual lives. Verse 14. I'm not writing this to shame you. Now, I think that's amazing. Because what he just wrote is probably the most shameful thing in all scripture. He just rips on them. Oh, you know what? But I'm not writing to shame you. It's kind of like when I was an 8th grade teacher. And the kids used to look at other kids and say, Gee, you are ugly. Just kidding. I mean, I don't know. Um, I'm not writing this to shame you. But to warn you as my Dearly beloved children, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Father figure. He says you have 10,000 guardians. You have people giving you advice. But nobody who really owns you. No one who said, I take you. You are mine. And he says there's two things about this. The first one is he says, I'm going to warn you. My dear children. A father is someone who passes warning. Second thing, a father is someone who you imitate. Or a father is someone who you uh, follow. He says, but you imitate me. Urge you to imitate me. He's going to send Timothy so Timothy can remind them of his way of life. Now let's just take those each a minute. What happens? What happened to them? First thing is they were running through stop signs. Nobody was giving them warnings. So Paul, go back one. Uh, I, I love this sign. Danger ahead. Fasten safety belts and remove dentures. Now I have absolutely no idea what that means. I just want to see what's ahead personally. Why you would need to remove your dentures. But there's something happening there. And this sign is saying don't do it. Or like this next one just says, it just says stop it. Right? That's what a father does. That's what good dads do. Those of you who are dads in the room, there's times when you just come into the room and you just go, knock it off. That's a good thing. Stop it. I'm warning you, stop it. And it's not the severity of the consequence, it's the certainty. You've got to have certainty, man. There's fences and you go up against a fence or you leave a fence. It doesn't need to be severe, but it needs to be certain. That this will happen. That's what good dads do. That's what spiritual dads do in your life. They look at you and say, dude, the way you're treating your wife, stop it. Wrong. Don't do that anymore. And they kick you right in the butt. That's what a spiritual dad does. Spiritual, a spiritual parent, a spiritual dad will look at you and say those kinds of things. Now some of you didn't grow up with a dad. And so it's hard. It's very hard because you didn't have a male, a man, looking into your life saying, knock it off. Or some of you came with abusive parents, abusive dad, who not only said knock it off, but he beat you. Or or maybe he didn't even tell you knock it off, he just whacked you one. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about someone who says, I warn you, my dearly beloved children, I love you deeply. So I'm going to give you a warning. Second thing is there's a a chance, an imitation, a following that happens with a father. Larry Crabb has written a book that's very influential in my life. 
It's called God of My Father. It's a, it's a story of, of how uh, his grandfather and his father, the, the impact that they had upon him. And it's kind of more like reading a personal journal than, than anything else. It's both written by uh, Larry Crabb and his father, Larry Crabb Sr., and it's, a, it's an amazing book. You can't get it anymore, though. I looked this morning. You can't get it anymore. You can get it for a dollar on Amazon or one of the used places, but you can't get the book anymore. In that book, if you open it up, you get three, you get three things that a father does. I just want to read those to you, just from the, from the inside front cover. He gives three things. It says, a father is someone who walks a path in a way that attracts others to want to walk the same path. Second thing, a father is someone who occasionally turns around and looks on his children following him with a compassion that leaves no doubt he understands and cares for them. He understands because he has been taking the time to listen to them and because he hasn't forgotten his own history. He cares because he feels deeply how much he longs for what he is not, is not yet his. So what does a good father do? A good father walks a path that is worthy of someone else following. He's an honorable person. Secondly, he turns around at his children and he says, and he hears them and he, he listens, he interacts with them, he knows them. He listens to their journey. But then there's a third part. A father is someone who turns again to face ahead, away from his children and continues his journey, never giving help that will let, allow his children to succeed easily and thereby weaken their character by living for something more important than his children, a father gives them the most precious gift any father can give, the gift of transcendence. His ongoing involvement with them keeps them from feeling abandoned and worthless. His passion for God keeps them from thinking that they are the center of life. Instead, they are drawn to join him in pressing on towards the highest goal. A father does not just linger there, though, and do everything for his children. He backs off and he continues his own journey. Allowing them to have their own failures and mistakes and all that. That's what dads do. Moms have a tendency to want to bandage up every little thing. Dads pretty much just say, suck it up. Keep going. You're doing fine. Get back on the bike. And that's what a father does. That's what a spiritual father does too. Walks honorably. Turns around and engages. But then is not codependent upon you. And turns back towards God. Many of you in this room have never had a spiritual father figure. I would encourage you to get one. Now that doesn't mean that you have to spend once a day talking to them. Ask them if they'll meet once a quarter to have breakfast and just share life with you. That's how about often I get together with my mentor. About once a quarter. And we meet some other times here and there as I happen to see them. But once a quarter, that's about it. And this is a person who looks into my life and says, stop it. And he's also a man who is 75 years old now that I want to be like when I'm 75 in many ways. They don't have many spiritual fathers and it's leading them down a wrong path. Last thing, number four, lastly, is they're arrogant. Verse 18, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip, or in love and with a gentle spirit? I'll take 
the second half of that for 500, please, Alex? Uh, yeah, you want the second one, right? I don't want you with a whip. What are the two things that they're wrestling with there? It's all in this, in this area of arrogance. Number one, it's an overcome, arrogance is an overconfidence in my ability to understand something or my ability to think or my ability of certainty or just my ability in any other category. That's what arrogance is. It's an overconfidence in my level of certainty or ability. No one else matters. And it's kind of like, because every one of us is designed with a brain, we all think, aha, this is where I live. This is what's going on up here. So therefore, it must be the very center of the universe. I must be, go to the next one there. I must be the center of everything. Not so. You are not the center of everything. You are a speck on a speck of a planet in a speck of a galaxy. You are little. No offense. I am too. And God is the center of everything. We are designed by God to be God-centered. But our own brains, and just because our own consciousness, we put ourselves at the center. That is the definition of arrogance. It is a speck on a speck on a speck looking at the infinite and saying, why don't you revolve around me, God? That's what it's saying. And that's what many people think. Secondly, it's arrogant because it misunderstands what real power is. Let me show you a picture. You've maybe seen this picture. Picture of military force. That is a, is a force, right? Four tanks, man, coming to, there was a civil unrest, and these tanks were coming to take out the civil unrest. You familiar with the picture? I skipped a little bit. A little bit on the left. I'll go to the next one. That little dude, that one Chinese student, stood there and stopped all four tanks. Now, how can that be? How can one dude stop four tanks? Well, he had power. How do you have power? Because they knew the world was watching at that moment, and they knew that if they ran over him, that the, the, the China would face all kinds of ramifications. So there was power there, and it wasn't the kind of power you think it would be. And the kingdom of God is exactly the same way. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel message, what we talked about before, the simple message that Christ died for sinners, of which John Newton and I would agree, I am the worst. That's the simple message of the gospel. He says that message is life transforming. It is the best message in the world and it is the power of God even though people look at me and say, fool for believing that. Fool for investing your life in that. That's the message, the real power. The, king, the, the message, uh, like Paul says here, of the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but a matter of power. Power of God transforming. Those are the roots. Those are the roots in Corinth. Those things, those four things. Number one, looking at people wrongly. Number two, uh, having a demanding spirit, having an, what we call an over-realized eschatology, or, or looking and say, God, you owe me these things. Number three, that you have, uh, don't have spiritual fathers and peoples in, in your life that can actually have authority to speak into your life. And then lastly, you're arrogant. As you look at those things, just let those land for a minute. Is there any one of those things that God today would ask you, yeah, that's an area I need to work on. That's an area, God, by your spirit, you need to change in me. Right now, I turn from this. Let's pray together.
Jesus, I, I want to thank you that in the history of hope, uh, although it's only 13 years that, that uh, you've allowed us to never have factions. Lord, and who knows, maybe by your grace that'd be something that you'd want this church to go through for our own development. I pray not. I pray we could learn whatever it is you want to teach us without that. And so I pray, God, that the people in this room, and myself included, and anyone else who hears this, God, that, that you would cause us to be people who are don't have any of these roots in our lives. We would do whatever it takes to not have these things. So Jesus, I pray for that. I pray for people in this room. I pray, Lord, for, for them who maybe for the first time in their lives realize that their sins can be forgiven. They can walk out of here with life new. And I pray, Jesus, that you allow them right now in the quietness of their heart to open up their heart to you and to say, I repent from following anything but you. I repent from exchanging the, the truth of God for a lie. And they come to you. I pray for that, Lord God, that you might do that even in this room. I pray also that for every single person in this room. Daily we're going to struggle with these things. So daily we need to come to you. Yes, of course, you come once and change us and save us. But Lord, we need you all the time. So I ask, Holy Spirit, by the power of your work in our lives, that you would speak to us individually and you'd change us. That we would not be the same as we were at 11 o'clock when this service started. That we would be different people because your spirit got a hold of us. Even, God, even as we sing this last song, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.